We're in the midst of a series of messages designed to address the question, what does the future hold? And uh, as we've considered this question, I've been um, reminded over and over again of this one profound truth, and that is this, that God's plan and man's ideas for the future, future are often in direct conflict with one another. God's plans and man's ideas are often in direct conflict for one another. Not only just in regard to what's going to take place in the future, but also what's taking place currently in the present. The book of Isaiah, we read this in Isaiah 55, 8 through 11. We read, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and, and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater. He says, so my word shall go forth from my mouth and it shall not return empty. It says, without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I have sent it. The point is pretty clear that God thinks in ways differently than us that we need to align our thinking with God's thinking because his thinking is correct. And he also says that his word as it goes forth will succeed and accomplish its purposes. And so it's a guarantee. It's, it's basically the word of God is not to cause confusion in our life, but to bring about clarity, to bring about an understanding of God and his ways, of his thoughts and his intentions, to reveal his plans, his character. And included in this area, obviously, are his plans for the future. Uh, which will also succeed according to his word. You know, he is the perfect communicator. And as the word of God goes forth, he communicates truthfully exactly as it's going to take place. You know, communication is a problem. I know I speak with people regularly. I've got my own communication problems when it comes to, you know, being married, having a, having a wife, having children, having a business. Uh, communication is one of those things where we're always constantly learning to improve. And uh, communication, as far as God is concerned, is very clear, but oftentimes it makes it rather confusing. I like an essay that I came across recently by an Asian student of English, and it kind of highlights the confusion that can take place as far as communication is concerned. She writes this. She says, let's face it, English is a crazy language. There is no egg and eggplant or ham and hamburger, neither apple nor pine and a pineapple. It says English muffins were not invented in England or French fries in France. Sweet meats are candies, while sweet breads, which aren't sweet, are meat. We take English for granted, but if we explore its paradoxes, we find that quicksand can work very slowly, boxing rings are square, and a guinea pig is neither from Guinea nor is it a pig. It says, and why is it that writers write, but fingers don't fing, grocers don't grouse, and hammers don't ham? If the plural of tooth is teeth, why isn't the plural of booth beef? One goose, two geese, so one moose, two meese. One index, two indices. Is cheese the plural of chose? She says, if teachers taught, why don't preachers prot? And if a vegetarian eats vegetables, my question is, what then does a humanitarian eat? It reminds me of the story of two cannibals who are sitting around a campfire finish, finishing off a clown. One of them looked at the other one and said, does this taste funny to you? <laughs> Just wanted to see if you were paying attention, that's all. Back to the essay. In what language do people recite at a play and play at a recital? Ship by truck and send cargo by ship. Have noses that run and feet that smell. Park on driveways and drive on parkways. How can a slim chance and a fat chance be the same? while a wise man and a wise guy are opposites. How can the weather be hot as hell one day and cold as hell another? When a house burns up, it actually burns down. You fill in a form by filling it out, and an alarm clock goes off by going on. When the stars are out, they're visible, but when lights are out, they're invisible. And why, when I wind up my watch, I start it, but when I wind up this essay, I end it. No wonder I flunked English. <laughs> oh, that's good. Thank God that his word isn't as confusing as uh, sometimes we make our communication with one another. And, you know, if you get, get right down to it and you spend the time to study it, it is incredibly rewarding to those who spend time studying the word of God. You know, the Bible in the New Testament specifically was written in common Greek. 
And I'm convinced that the reason it was written in common Greek is because God wanted it to be in the hands of all of mankind. Not to eliminate the, those of us who are working class people from being able to understand the full counsel of God and turning it over to those who are, quote, more educated than us. But the Bible has been given to all of mankind to reveal the ways of God and the truth of God and the word of God so that all can come into an understanding of who our God is. So as we look at this and uh, we consider the things that are going on and we consider the question, what does the future hold? Recently, our household, and I'm sure that some of yours as well, have been bombarded by mailers from travel agencies suggesting ways to celebrate the millennium. The headlines are, be a part of history, don't be left out. We're encouraged to sail the Caribbean, the Panama Canal, Mexico, South America, travel to more exotic destinations such as New Zealand, Nepal, Turtle Island, even the Holy Land. Prices for such a celebration, they range. For example, off of one brochure I got this week, uh, $26,995 per person for that South American excursion will help you bring in the new millennium. Or $17,450 per person to Fiji. $38,000 if you want purified water. Uh, just testing again. For those who truly want to celebrate the millennium in style, this, is a, this was an interesting one. A $200,000 trip to Turtle Islands, which is what they call their wedding package. Because you could be the first couple to be married on the face of the earth because of the time situation that takes place on the Turtle Islands, and uh, you would be the first. Well, do you know that God has much to say about how to celebrate the millennium? Now, not the millennium that we are getting in our travel brochures, but the millennium that is promoted in great detail in the Word of God. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with the term, we ask the question, what is the millennium? And that'll be our subject. We started it last time. We'll finish it this morning, and that's this. What exactly is the millennium as described in the Bible? The best place to find it is in your Bibles. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 20. In Revelation chapter 20, we see the exact duration of this particular period of time. The millennium actually is a period of time that is a thousand years in duration. Revelation chapter 20, verse 1 through 10, we find the specific period of time clearly identified in this particular passage. We read this. It says, And I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he, held, and he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil, and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he should not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. And after these things, he must be released for a short time. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark upon their forehead and upon their hand. And they came to life, and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years were completed, Satan will be released from prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. In this particular passage, we have some insight into the question, what is the millennium? According to the Bible, it is a thousand-year period of time when Messiah will reign on the earth, also known throughout the Bible as the kingdom of God is at hand, the kingdom of God is about to be established. And in our last meeting together, we began to look at what we're going to see as seven things that the Bible has to say about this specific period of time, this thousand years, or this kingdom of God. The first thing that we saw was it is the direct rule of God on the earth. In Matthew 6.10, Jesus says he taught his disciples to pray. He said, pray then in this way, our Father who is art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. No time in the history of the world has God's will been done exactly as it's done in heaven here on earth, but it will take place in this thousand year period of time. It is the time of direct rule of God on the earth, specifically in the person of Jesus Christ who will reign over all of the earth. 
And Daniel says in Daniel chapter 7, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancients of, ancient of days, speaking of God the Father, and was led into his presence, and was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. And all peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and the kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. I had a question that was asked last time that we were together. Uh, a woman asked me, she said, you know, I, I'm kind of confused between, you know, the kingdom, which is the millennial, kingdom and then of eternity which is heaven and what we need to recognize and understand is this that when the Bible says that his kingdom will be established and there will be no end even though there will be an end of the thousand year period of time yet eternity will be will be ushered in following this period of time so when his kingdom is established what God is saying is this that his kingdom will be established and there will be no end as the millennium will then blend into all of eternity so once it begins it will continue throughout eternity so in case there are some others who may have been confused about that as if the thousand years will end and then all of a sudden there's another period of time and, and there's some confusion as to well how can the kingdom be established and then end and then re-begin and that's basically the simple answer to it is that it just rolls into all of eternity. It is a time of personal reign of Jesus Christ over all of the earth. What's fascinating to me is in Luke chapter 1 when the angel came to announce the birth of Jesus Christ we read these words and the angel said this in Luke 1, 31 through 33. It says, And behold, you will conceive, speaking to Mary, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. The point that is being made is that when Jesus Christ begins to reign over the house of David and reigns from Jerusalem, and Micah 5, 2 says that he will be a ruler in Israel, that once that period of time starts, that he will reign forever and ever into eternity. Now, some of us say, well, wait a minute, but the Bible specifically says that when Messiah comes, that he will reign over Israel, and he will take his place on the throne of David. The question that we have to ask ourselves is this, is Jesus Christ anywhere in Scripture clearly identified as Messiah? And I was, I was thinking about that, and I was just reading through the Gospel of John this week just for some, something to read. And in John chapter 4, there's a statement that's made by the Samaritan woman. If you've got your Bibles, look with me at that for a second because it'll answer that question in its entirety. In John chapter 4, if you know the story, Jesus comes to a Samaritan woman who is at a well, and he begins to tell her all about her life which was interesting to her because she tried to blow smoke at him and said, well, the guy that I'm living with right now isn't really my husband. And Jesus looked and said, yeah, I know he's not your husband, and neither were the other five guys. You know? And she was like, whoa, you know, who is this that knows everything about my life? Well, the reality of it is, is that God knows every intimate detail of every one of our lives. The Bible says that God is omniscient, that he is omnipresent, that he knows exactly what's going on in our hearts even as we are here today. The word of God is able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of our heart. God knows everything about us, every crummy last detail. And the Bible says, and that's why even while we are yet sinners, he still sent Christ to die for us. And that's a wonderful truth. But in John chapter 4, as we look at this in verse 24, uh, Jesus said to her, uh, in verse 23, we'll pick it up there, it says, But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshiper shall worship the Father in spirit and truth. It says, For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. For God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Now the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. And when that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you, am he. Da -da. Matthew chapter 16, Jesus asked Peter the same thing. Hey, who do people say that I am? Hey, some say you're John the Baptist, Peter said. Some say you're a great teacher. Some say you're a prophet, whatever. But Jesus said, well, but who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ. You're Messiah, son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for that has not been revealed to you by man, but only through my Father who is in heaven. Jesus Christ continually accepted the reality and the claim the people made that he was God in human flesh. He was the promised Savior of the world. And that's why when the angel said to Mary that you will name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins, that the Bible clearly identifies that Jesus Christ is Messiah, Jesus is the Christ, Jesus is the Savior of the world, the long-awaited one for the nation of Israel. 
There is no way in the world that we can accept anything less than that from those around us who we may have conversation with as to the identity of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God and God alone. He is God in human flesh who came for the express purpose of saving people from sin. He died on the cross in our place. That was his mission. He says that I've come to seek and to save that which was lost. We need to recognize that any other answer other than that simply is, a, is heretical, it is not truth, and it is a lie from the pit of hell. And exactly as we look at this, we see that during the millennium, it'll be a time of the personal reign of Jesus Christ over all of the earth, that he is Messiah. He is the one that was promised to come and sit on the, on the throne of David, and he will rule from there. The third thing that we saw also was that it, it involves, the millennium involves the resurrection of believers who will reign with Jesus Christ. We'll look at that next time in great detail. The re resurrection and judgment is a fascinating subject when, it, when we look at what we can expect to take place in the future. But in 2 Timothy 2, 11 through 13, we read these words. This is a trustworthy statement. If we died with him, I have been crucified, the Apostle Paul said. I've been crucified in Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. And it is not I who live any longer, but Christ who lives within me. So when the Bible says, if we have died with him, have you accepted his death on your behalf? If so, you have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by my faith in the Son of God who loved me and he gave himself up for me. The Bible says that if we have died with him, we shall also live with him. That Jesus is the first fruits of those who would raise afterwards. That through one man, Adam's sin entered to the world and through Adam and sin came death. Through one man, Jesus Christ came into the world and through him we will have life and have it eternally we will have it abundantly it says if we disown him he will disown us the only way to get into heaven is to receive and accept jesus christ's death on our behalf if you disown that if you reject that truth then you will be judged accordingly for that rejection he says if we are faithless though as believers he is still faithful to us it says for we he cannot disown himself but notice he says that we will reign with him Speaking of reigning with him, we're going to talk a little bit more about, but that is simply this, that we will reign with him. When will we reign with him? Because the idea of reign has to do with a political idea or one of having authority over others. If we are going to reign with him, the question that you have to ask yourself is, who will we reign over? Certainly, we're not speaking of eternity in heaven because all believers will be there. We're not going to reign over one another because Jesus Christ will reign over all. But when we're talking about reigning over others and reigning with him, there's only one period of time in human history when that will take place. And that's during the thousand-year reign when Jesus Christ rules from this earth. Because it'll be during that time that you and I, as believers, and as we get into the judgment and rewards that we have, God will determine what exactly our part will be in that kingdom with, uh, as far as reigning with him. So those are the three things that we saw in great detail last time. Now we're going to pick it up on this particular point, and that's this. The millennium is also going to be a period of time of uh, what we would call a prolonged restriction upon satanic activity and evil. The millennium is a prolonged restriction of satanic activity and evil. Notice from our passage that we already saw in Revelation chapter 20. It says, And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and he bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked him and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be set free for a short period of time. As I read this particular passage, it gives us God's final answer to the puny excuses of men as to the cause of evil in the world. We live in a world that is so confused as to the cause and the root of evil. It is amazing to me, and anyone that's gone to any secular university understands that and knows that. I got my degree in criminal justice, and I would listen for years about the argument of why are people so screwed up? Why are people so rotten? Why are people so evil? Why do people do the things that they do? You know, we're talking now, you know, when we think about what's taking place in Colorado and the violence that's taking place in our culture and all the debate that takes place as to how can somebody do something like that? 
and they start arguing about, well, you know, it must be, you know, when you hear people on talk shows, it must be the parents' fault. I mean, what kind of parents do these kids have that, that they wouldn't know that these things are going on? I mean, what kind of parents don't know their kids are out in the garage making bombs? I mean, what kind of parents? It must be the parents, and it's got to be the parents. And you know what? It's, no, no, no. It's got to be. It's got to be the schools. It's got to be the schools because it has to be the education system because we're just not educating our children to have respect for human life. We're not educating our children to have respect for authority. We're not educating our children any longer, you know, like, like we used to. We're not doing any of those things. It's got to be that. So sociologists argue about the causes of evil and educators argue about what type of education and all of that. And let me just tell you something to make it as simple as possible for you to understand very clearly what God has to say about the cause of evil in the world. And that is this, that man is sinful and is by nature rotten and evil and corrupt and wicked. Who can understand the heart of man that's evil and wicked above all else? Only God. The reality of it is, and people don't want to hear that because we all want to believe that, you know what, there's some good in all of us. Yeah, well, let me tell you something. You could be, you know, you could be 99% good, but that 1% evil is enough to make you a sinner before God. And under the right circumstance, and under the right provocation, and under the right motivation, you know what, there but by the grace of God go you and I. And we need to recognize that and understand that. You know, when I've been going out and visiting Matt in prison, I think that God really taught me that reality as I sat there and talked to him. And I heard so many things about his background and his life that reminded me of many things about my own. And I sat there and I looked at him and I realized, you know what? I could have did the same thing you did. Under the right circumstance and the right provocation and under the situation that he was in, you know what? I could easily be sitting there and somebody may be coming to visit me. See, prisons are filled with people that are just like you and I. The only difference is they got caught. I don't know if that's comforting to you sitting next to the person that you're sitting next to today. But see, uh, and you, I have no idea. I can't even begin to explain how you still sit here every week. We'll all be visiting you someday. But the reality of it is, is this, that you know what? That God has an answer for evil. And he says simply that man's heart is wicked, that man's heart is rotten, that through Adam sin entered the world and through him came, sin came death, and that every one of us as children of Adam, or so-called uh, the, the children of Adam, we all have a congenital defect, birth defect called sin nature. And we sin because we're sinners. We're not sinners because we sin. We do what comes naturally. And so as we look at this, we begin to realize that, you know what? Changing a person's environment does not change their heart. Some of you struggle with that because you've got children and you look at that and you go, I don't understand, Lord. We raised all of our children in the same home. We love the Lord. We love God. We all went to church together. We read our Bibles. We did all the things that, you know, you say to do. And, you know, three of them are walking with you. And one of them's out there like, what in the world's going on? And we're wondering, did they make a switch at the hospital? You know, it's like, what's that all about? And what it's all about is this. That we're all individually accountable for God, before God. And it's all about this. That we all individually have uh, choices that we can make. And it's all about this. That you know what? We can raise our children in the exact same environment, but every one of them are different people before God. And they'll have accountability before God to make choices. Some will make good choices. Some will make bad choices. And we'll sit and we'll beat ourselves up as parents. But the reality of it is, is this. That all of us are accountable and responsible for our own choices before God. And that's a freeing thing when you begin to realize as a parent that, you know what, we are not responsible for the choices that our children make. We're responsible to live a life that's a godly life before them as an example, to do what's right before God at all times so that we can never sit and have regrets and blame ourselves for the choices that other people make. You are here today, you need to understand that you do not have any excuse before God. You cannot blame your parents, you cannot blame your teachers, you cannot blame your environment, you cannot blame whether you're rich or poor, you can't blame anybody, but you are accountable before God and you need to take responsibility for your own actions because you will be without excuse when you stand before God one day. From the very beginning of history, the Bible teaches that we have an enemy of our soul, one who wants to destroy us, the tempter, the evil one, the liar, the slanderer, the destroyer. The Bible says that Satan is a real personality, that he exists, and his sole existence is to destroy those who want to do what's right and follow God. 
He is a destroyer. Jesus said he was a liar from the beginning. We know that from the Garden of Eden when he lied to Adam and Eve. We know that he's a deceiver when he said, surely God didn't say what you think that he said. That's not what he said. Believe what I'm going to tell you. He is a murderer because if you believe him, you will die in your sins. And the Bible says that he is there and he will try to destroy us. In 1 Peter chapter 5, it says he's a roaring lion looking to seek and destroy those who he can devour. At the end of the tribulation period, a wonderful thing will take place. For the first time in the history of the universe, after Lucifer was kicked out of heaven, now we see that in this particular passage, he will be kicked out of the earth. The Bible says after the tribulation period and before the beginning of the millennium that God sends an angel coming down out of heaven having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. That God sends an angel with a great chain, whether it's a literal chain or a chain that God sends, it'll be a chain that will bind Satan. He will not be able to get away from it. And you know, there are some who say, well, you know what, Satan's bound today. And my answer to them is, if Satan is bound today, it must be an awful long chain. Because the chain that I read in Revelation 20 is, is that he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan, and he bound him for a thousand years. The bottom line is this. When that day comes and Satan is bound, he will be bound and he will be bound according to the word of God for a thousand years and he will no longer deceive people into believing his lies. And that's exactly what the Bible says. He will be thrown into the abyss. The abyss is a place. It's not the lake of fire. It is not hell as we would call it. It is a place where Satan and his demons are bound by God. And they are bound there until they will be judged at the end of the millennial period of time. The bottomless pit. And when we look at this, we realize that when God binds Satan, he binds him and he will have no influence on this world. And he will be locked and sealed it over him to keep him. The purpose of this binding is to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. How can anyone in good conscience read the Bible and read this and question what it is that God is trying to say? Satan will be bound. He will be bound for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are over, he will be loosed after that, and we will talk about that in a second. During the thousand years in which Messiah will rule and reign on the earth and Satan is restricted from deceiving and destroying, we finally will see for the first time, for the first time in the history of the world, a perfect society. There will be no wars. Isaiah 2.4, he will judge, speaking of Jesus Christ, he will judge the nations, he will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. They will be taking weapons of destruction and turning them into instruments of productivity. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war any longer. Notice that. The millennium will begin to usher in a period of time where there will be peace on earth. There will never again be war into eternity. That's what the Bible says. And when we look at that, what's fascinating to me is this, that from an application standpoint, I think it's important that we understand something. The idea of disarming nations and disarming individuals, in my opinion, as I read the Word of God, is contrary to what God's Word has to say. I'm not talking about assault weapons. I'm not talking about allowing children to buy guns and all that kind of stuff. I'm not talking about the extremes. Because whatever, what always happens is we always jump to extremes in our nation. Because the politicians like to ride on extreme events. Because that's how they gather momentum and that's how they get people's votes. So all of a sudden, we're going we're gonna to ride the momentum of anything that takes place in society. We need to understand the word of God specifically says this. Jesus said in Luke 11:21, A strong man armeth armed keeps his palace. What he means by that is not, not that everybody should go out and buy a gun, but the reality of what God is saying is this. It has to do with a worldview. And there's two worldviews. One worldview says, you know what, we're all really good at, at heart, and if we, we are allowed to do the right thing, we will always choose what's best for one another. Th hey, that's a worldview that's promoted on a regular basis. Some, we, we snicker and laugh because, you know what, it's stupid. It really is a stupid way to look at life. There is no evidence of that. The other worldview is the way God sees things. My thoughts aren't your thoughts, folks. My ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than yours. And let me just tell you what God has to say. You know what? People are evil. They are wicked and they are sinful. And God has established authority to protect us from those evil.
institutions that every one of us have. That's why we have judicial systems. That's why we have authority. That's why we have law. That's why we have government. That's why we have family institutions. That's why we have the church, so that we can protect one another from each other in the tendency to do that which would be harmful to one another. That's why you have rules at work. Because if everybody did what they wanted to do, it would be absolute chaos. That's why there is order and there is structure. Because the heart of man is evil and wicked and deceitful, and we would do what comes naturally, which is, number one, would be me first, and all the rest of you, I could care less where you fall on on the list. I'll take care of myself. The rest of you, who cares? So as we look at this, we're, we're beginning to understand that, you know what, in the millennium, there will be no more wars. Because Jesus Christ has the authority to make sure that nobody violates the peace that he establishes. Which is a wonderful truth. It is, and I know this isn't politically correct, but it's biblically correct, and that's why I don't have a problem sharing it with you. It is absolutely futile, nonsensical, and asinine for any man or nation to promise to bring peace upon the earth today. It is absolutely stupid. And when we have leaders who say they can do that, we need to make sure we elect somebody else who understands God's worldview. And that is we need to be protected from one another. We need to have a strong military. We need to understand that we need to have a military presence that basically says to our enemies who would want to destroy us at the first event that they can, t that they can take advantage of, listen, you may want to destroy us, but you know what? We'll fight back. Because that is the only thing that restrains evil. You cannot make room in a garden for weeds. And you cannot allow in your body to grow cancer. Because it will not be content to stay where it is. It must be eradicated. Some of us get real uncomfortable because this isn't what we're hearing all around us, are we? Hey, we're hearing, let's all go to the United Nations and we'll all work it out. They can't even communicate with one another. Stop and think about it for a second. They all got things in their ears and looking at each other like, what did he say? Now, I don't know if you understand that, but that's not conducive to working through things. It's like, what did he say? And they're smiling, but they're saying mean things to each other. Just, just sign this. What, what are we signing? It doesn't matter, because then when we sign it, we break it as soon as we sign it, because afterwards we realize that, well, that wasn't what we thought we signed. The United Nations and NATO and all the efforts and the attempts, and I'm not saying we should just roll over and play dead when there is evil going on in the world because we need to be a force and we need to make a statement that we won't allow it to happen. The problem in Nazi Germany was that everybody stood around going, well, gee, no one could be that wicked, no one could be that evil. The reality was, guess what? People can be that wicked, people can be that evil, and, and, and godly people need to step up in the vacuum or in the void and make a statement that we won't allow that type of evil to persist. We've seen it happen in history, and it'll repeat itself, therefore we must take a stand and do something about it. And we need to recognize and understand that, you know what, we aren't all the world, and we're not going to all hold hands, and we're not going to think peace, and we're not going to light candles and float them on leaves down the rivers, and we're not going to do any of that stuff and make, it, make, it, make any difference in the world. But when Jesus Christ comes and he establishes peace, he will establish peace and his peace will endure not only through the millennium but into eternity. Why? Because he has the authority and he has the power to make sure that it takes place the way that he says that it will. And until then, we are going to be rudely disappointed if we think that everyone in this world is going to be nice to one another. I can't even believe that I even have to talk about that. Think about how, how foolish that is to say something that should be so evident and so obvious. But you know what's so frightening to me? Is that it's God's people who don't even understand God's worldview. It's God's people who are buying into the nonsense of our culture that says that we're all okay. We may have a bad day or two, but for the most part, I think that people are inherently good. And the Bible says, no, people are inherently evil, and thereby, by the grace of God, go you and I and thank God, and we need to turn to him as quickly as possible. The second thing that's interesting to me about this period of time in the millennium uh, is that the Bible says not only will, in Isaiah 32, 17 through 18, the fruit of righteousness will be peace, the effect of righteousness will be quietness and confidence forever. My people will live in peaceful dwelling places and secure homes and undisturbed places until you get to the millennium. I would recommend you keep locking your doors. That's just, you know, hey, take it with you. If it's all that you got out of today, take it with you. You know, I, I would recommend it. 
And the reason for it is until then, we, we don't live in a safe world. We live in a mean and evil, dirty, ugly world. And we need to take recognition of what God's Word says. In Isaiah 42, 1 through 4, I love this because not only will there be no wars during the millennium, but there will be no injustice during the millennium. Notice this, Isaiah 42, 1 through 4. Here's my servant, speaking of Jesus, whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not have to shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged to establish his justice on earth. In his law the islands will, will put their hope. Notice what he says. That during this time, during the millennium, I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. For those who say we're living in that period of time, my question for you is this. Give me just one shred of evidence that there is justice in this world. Any, anywhere. Show me one place. And do you know why there will be justice during the millennium? Because there will be, in my opinion, and the way I read this and the way I look at this, because there will be no attorneys. <laughs> Think with me for a minute. Will there be a need for an attorney? No. Why? Because there will be no defense for the guilty and no need to defend the innocent. I love that. I mean, I can't wait to get to the millennium just for that, if that, if that alone. Think about it. It will be a theocracy. Jesus Christ will rule and He will reign. He will bring justice to the nations. As a contractor, and probably as a consumer, I look forward to the day where we do work, we get paid. I long for that day. And I'm sure as a consumer, you're probably thinking, hey, contractor, I look for the day when we get the work done that we paid for. <laughs> now, that's in every other area but heating and air conditioning. Just want to let you know. And so I'm thinking about this, and I'm going, you know what? Hey, there's no need for attorneys because there will be no defense for those who are guilty. Why? Because God knows all. You can't defend the guilty. They're guilty. And there's no need to defend the innocent because he knows that. And he doesn't even have to wait for the DNA to come back from the lab. Isn't that great? Think about this. There will be no manipulation of evidence. There will be no jury tampering. Probably the best thing could ever happen is there will be no juries. I mean, what a scary thought that is to place your fate in the hands of 12 people who don't have a clue about anything in life. What a great system. And we're getting paid, now think of this, five bucks a day. <laughs> now I want you to think about it. The next time you go to Taco Bell and you order a couple tacos, the person that gives you the Taco Bell that you can't even understand because <laughs> it's like they're making that much in an hour. And those 12 people sitting there with your fate in their hand are making that much all day. And, that, and it's chewed up on what they have to pay to park. All right, so there you go. So what are we talking about here? We're talking about the millennium, and I'm looking forward to it. But unfortunately, until we get there, as my attorney tells me, I'm just a necessary evil. Not me, him. And that's the truth, because we wouldn't need it. Let's keep going. Number five. During the millennium, it'll be the final removal of the curse upon the earth. The curse, you're not an attorney, are you, sir? <laughs> uh, great. I'll be expecting the subpoena or lawsuit, whatever, shortly. I moved. It'll be the final removal of the curse upon the earth. You know that when uh, Satan usurped man's authority on the earth, the Bible says that from that moment in Genesis chapter 3, you can read it on your own, that God cursed this earth. It says, And the creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed, for the creation was subjected to frustration, not only by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, and hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay, to, to decay and brought into a glorious freedom of the children of God. We know the whole creation has been groaning as, as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we await eagerly for the adoption of sons, 
the redemption of our bodies. The whole world is in, in, in utter futility and frustration because of the curse. The Bible says, and let me just give you some, uh, some uh, references to jot down, but it's a wonderful thing because as we look at the, the millennial period of time, the book of Isaiah is filled with descriptions. And you can go home and read this on your own to save us a little bit of time now, but that's this, that the, uh, the millennial reign as this removal of the curse takes place on the earth, the first thing that we see is that it'll be a drastic change in all of the landscape. Isaiah 32, 15 says, And the wilderness becomes a fertile field, and all the deserts of the world will blossom like a rose. What a wonderful truth that is. You know, we're informed today that the deserts are increasing in size. They expand every year. Uh, you, know, they're not being re, you know, they're not being reduced at all. In fact, drought and soil erosion are increasing and hastening the process. So when we look at this and we begin to realize you know, that today pollution is, is a common topic throughout the world, and yet during the millennium, all of this will be reversed. That the deserts of the world will blossom like a rose. How many of you have ever flown across country? And you fly across southwest portion of this United States, and you look at the desert, and as I think about the promises of God, what an incredible time this will be when this prophecy is fulfilled, that as you look down, if we're taking airplane flights during the millennium, and we're looking around, and we're seeing what's going on, and you look and you go, the whole earth will be green and fertile, and the deserts will become like, like rose gardens, and they will blossom uh, because of the curse being removed from God. What a wonderful truth that is. You know, there will no longer be any weeds. I was back in Pennsylvania last week for a niece's wedding, and as I was driving down the road, there were dandelions everywhere, and I was having flashbacks from when I was a kid, and outside with a bucket, man, digging these things up, and it was like, you know, it was just never-ending. And you dig them up, and then you start to cheat because you knew you are going to be there all day, so you just took off the flowers off of the top, and you just left the roots there. You know, no one will know until the next day. Doink! You know, there's flowers all over the place again. And it's like, man, you know, you got to dig down, and you got to get the roots out, and you got to dig deep, and you know what? And that's what God has to do with evil in the world. He has to dig down, and he's got to take the roots of evil out of the hearts of man if we're going to survive at all. If we're going to find a favor in the sight of God, if we're going to find forgiveness, he digs down. He just doesn't deal with the symptoms and chop off the flowers, but he gets to the heart issue of man. But during the millennium, you know what? Every desert in the world will be productive. And it's amazing as you stop and think about this. The productivity of the land in Isaiah 4.2, we're going to see that it'll be more abundant than it's ever been. Think about it. No weeds, no pesticide, no pests, uh, no droughts, uh, none of the things that, that, that withhold productivity. The whole world will be productive. There will be no war, so all the military budgets that we see in the world today, instead of it going to weapons of destruction, will go to methods of productivity. Could you imagine what this world will reap from a production standpoint? The Bible clearly teaches all through the book of Isaiah 4, 2, 3, 23, 43, 19, 55, 12, 13. The world has never seen a time of abundance that we will see during the millennium. We also will see it in the animal kingdom. We read that last time we were together where, you know, the lion will lay down with the lamb and, the, 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 you know, a, a lion will eat straw instead of, you know, being carnivorous. It'll be a herbivore. And there will be no cannibals sitting around campfires eating clowns. It'll be just a wonderful time. You know, and when you look at that, they won't attack each other and your kids can go out and play and you don't have to worry about rattlesnakes. You don't have to worry about coyotes. You don't have to worry about anything. It'll be seen in the light upon the earth. The Bible says that the light in Isaiah 30, 26, that the world's light will increase sevenfold. So if you're looking for a stock tip, find Oakley. I mean, seven times brighter. Can you imagine? Seven times brighter in Isaiah 60, 19 says the same thing as Revelation 22, for it is the Lord's presence who will be the source of all light. Jesus Christ said, I am the light of the world. The mere presence of God on this earth will illuminate the world seven times brighter than the sun today. What an incredible thing. The physical condition of people will change. People will live longer, just as they did earlier. When you look at, you know, the oldest man almost lived to a thousand years, so it's not incomprehensible that man again may live to a thousand years during the millennium with no sickness, no illness. The productivity that we see that will take place, it's a wonderful time. It's a wonderful experience that will take place that we can look forward to. It is also a future restoration of a universal worship of God. You know what the Bible teaches in Isaiah 66, 23 and many other passages? That from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another, all of mankind will come and bow down before me, says the Lord. Isn't that wonderful? Jerusalem will be the seat where Jesus Christ will take his seat on the throne of David. A temple will be, a temple will be built that will exceed any temple that's ever been on the face of the earth. 
And that people will come from all over the world to worship God. Not the God of this world, not the gods that we invent, not the many gods in our society that people say, well, as long as you believe in a God, then that's okay. Because the reality is this, there is no other God. Hear this, God would say to Israel, and know this, that God is one. There is only one God. And we cannot manufacture or invent our own gods that are, that are comfortable for us, that we worship when we want, and we walk away from when we please, and we do whatever's comfortable to us, because there is only one God. And the Bible says that Jesus Christ is God incarnate in human flesh. So for those who say, I believe God, I believe in God, but I do not believe in Jesus Christ. I say to you, then you don't know who God is. For Jesus said it best when he said, if you've seen the, me, you've seen the Father. For I am, and the Father am one. Jesus Christ is God. The Bible teaches there is only one God manifested in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That is the truth of the Word of God. Is it easy to understand at times? Absolutely not. But the truth is still truth because the Word of God communicates to us very, very clearly that that is reality. There will be a day when all peoples of the world will come to Jerusalem to worship Jesus Christ. The Bible says that there will be sacrifices even offered during that time. And some would argue, well, wait a minute, I thought he died once for all. He did. But just as communion is a memorial of that death as a reminder, there will be sacrifices throughout the millennial period of time reminding us of the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made on the cross. The fact that you and I will rule and reign with him is directly attributed to the fact that he laid down his life for us. And finally, as we look at all this, the millennium is a final reminder of man's problem and his greatest need. It says, when a thousand years are over, when this millennial period comes to its conclusion, it says, Satan will be released from his prison, and he will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth. Why is Satan released? There would be some who say, I don't understand. Why would God release Satan? After all, look at this wonderful period of time that just took place on the face of the earth for a thousand years. The productivity, the prolonged life, the joy that people have, everything that we're going to experience in the millennium. Why would God allow Satan to be loosed so that he can continue to do what he's always done from the beginning, to lie and deceive and to murder and to destroy? And the Bible says very specifically, it is a reminder to all of us that our environment, though perfect, we may try to make it is not the cause of man's problem. The cause of man's problem from the very word of God from the very beginning is the heart of man that chooses to rebel against God. Even in a perfect environment, there will be those who give lip service to Jesus Christ, who will come before his presence and offer sacrifices, but as soon as Satan is loosed from the abyss where he is bound for a thousand years, he will go out and he will deceive the world. And look what it says. They will gather, he will gather them together for battle, and in number they are like the sand on the seashore. And they marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people and the city that he loves, which is Jerusalem. And that is exactly what will take place. Could you even imagine? Can you imagine how wonderful it will be to live during the millennium? Now you're asking, well, who's going to rebel against God? Well, those who enter into the millennium will have children. And if you think about the productivity of the world and the fact that there's no disease and the and pro prolonged age of the people that will live during that, there will be a population explosion during the millennium that has, been, that has never been equaled throughout human history. There will be, like the Bible says, there will be their numbers will be as great as the sands of the seashore. And you say, well, wait a minute, but they lived in this perfect environment. Yeah, they did. But you know what? But they still had a heart that had to make a choice of whether they would bend their knee and humble themselves before Jesus Christ or whether they would just give them external lip service and just go through the motions. Do you realize, as I realize, as the Bible realizes, as God realizes, that there are people that come to church on a regular basis that just give God external lip service. They just come because whatever reason, maybe it's history, maybe it's tradition, maybe it's to please a person that, that you're sitting next to. Who knows? I don't know. God knows. And they just give external lip service to God. Or maybe they're playing the odds, like in baseball and football chapels, where guys will come to chapel because, hey, you know, let's rub the head of the minister. Maybe we'll get some luck and we'll go out and score five in the bottom of the ninth. You know, whatever. You know, and God knows all of that. See, in the millennium, those, the same problem is going to exist. Perfect environment, same wicked hearts. And what's wonderful about the reality of what God is saying is this, that he will expose the greatest need that every one of us have, and that is to come into a relationship with God by believing in Jesus Christ. 
Notice what it says. You know what? And fire will come down from heaven and devour all those who rebel and reject the authority of God in their life. You know, we began our time today talking about travel agencies that are encouraging us to go out and celebrate the millennium by sending in our money today, making our reservation for that spot on that cruise or journey to some exotic destination. You know, as I thought about that, the reservation to the, the millennium celebration cannot be paid in dollars and cents. It doesn't matter how much money you have, you cannot reserve a place in the millennium on your own. The Bible says that Jesus says he stands at the door of every one of our hearts and he knocks. If any of us hear his voice and opens the door, he says, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You know, Jesus Christ paid for our forgiveness and he made our reservation in advance to those who would believe in him. The bottom line of all of this is, is that you know, man's greatest need is not for a perfect world or for a perfect environment, but his greatest need is for a new heart. And the great physician is the only one in the history of this world who has the authority and the ability to take a heart from a man or a woman who has been in rebellion against God and give him or her a new heart, a heart transplant, one that's soft and gentle and sensitive towards God and the things of God, one who humbles themselves. The Bible says for those who humble themselves, God in no ways will cast out. The Bible says that every one of us, if we want to reserve a place in the celebration of all celebrations, in the millennium, that today we need to hear the voice of God in our life and humble our hearts and receive Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. Because there's no money in the world that will be able to offer to you what only God can offer in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. The great and the small we'll see next time as we talk about judgment will stand before the great white throne judgment of Jesus Christ. And they will be judged on one thing and one thing alone. And that is the works that they have done that indicate that their hearts are still far from God and that they need a Savior. But then it'll be too late. But for you and I today, it's not too late. For if the Spirit of God is talking to you and convicting you and, and softening your heart, then today you need to make your millennium reservations by believing in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And boy, I'll tell you what, we are going to have a celebration like we've never celebrated on the face of the earth. For a thousand years, the Bible says that we will rule and we will reign with him, not because of anything good in and of ourselves, but because he has offered that invitation to all who will receive him and who will believe. Father, we just thank you for the truth of your word. And we're excited as we look forward to the future for those of us who have put our faith and trust in Christ. Even as we read these things, we get excited to the point that we can't wait for it to happen. And yet as the Apostle Paul was torn between his citizenship, which was in heaven, and his time here on earth, he realized that there were many in his life who have never come to put their faith and trust in Christ. And so for their sake, he prayed that he would stay longer, that he can somehow be a salt and light into their lives and that he can be a testimony of the truth of your word and presence before them. God, that's our prayer here today for those of us who know you. As we look forward to the future, we already know what we can anticipate and expect, but it's our prayer that you can use us today to bring about a difference in the heart, a hard heart of someone in our life. God, help us to be a, a testimony, to be a light, to be salt, to be light in darkness, and to help people understand your worldview, how you see things, because our thoughts aren't your thoughts and our ways aren't your ways. And this world is demonstrating that on a regular basis. God, help us to see that the only answer to the, to the greatest need that we have is to humble ourselves and turn to you and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. And we just thank you, and yet while we're sinners, you sent Christ to die for those who would believe. And we just praise you in his name. Amen.